All right, Acts chapter 13. We'll uh, jump right in, read it, and then uh, do a little bit of recap, and then jump into what we have for today. So Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets uh, and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus, and he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and they went about seeking people, excuse me, he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So as we get going today, just by introduction, we have, if you recall, the last couple of weeks, we talked about the group of people that were gathered here. We talked about their callings. We talked about the fact that those verses, or those, I should say, the words in the verses, uh, worshiping uh, and fasting, remember they're in the present active. It's a very important Greek verb tense. Not that we all have to be scholars or something like that, but just to understand that it was not an event. It was not a singular event, that this was a lifestyle of uh, worshiping, and the, the word there is used service. Every other time it's used in the New Testament. The idea is you know, serving the Lord, being in contact with the Lord, uh, and then fasting, the idea of making decisions to abstain. Remember, as we said over and over again, it's very important that, that abstaining or abstinence is not the end of life or repentance, right? There's no life in abstaining. Abstaining can be good because it may protect you. If you abstain from killing someone when you're very angry, that's good, right? But that's not real life. That's not the experiencing of joy and peace. That's abstaining. So they weren't just not doing some things. The reality is they were engaged in other things. And really, this is, I think, a secret for the Christian life and for repentance. That God doesn't just call us to abstain. He calls us to press in. uh, if If you try to empty yourself and you do not fill yourself with Christ and with His Spirit and allow Him to work in our hearts, then abstinence will merely lead to frustration and anger, probably depression and anxiety. So they're not just fasting, they're praying, they're seeking the Lord, and it was a lifestyle that they were involved in. We also talked about the different backgrounds, how they're, they're from different places, they're from different uh, you know, uh, groups of people. You have the one who's from Rome, part of the, um, part of the or at least very close friends with the, the 
authority that took over other people here, other Jews. And they're all getting along. They're all forgiving each other's past. They're not holding it against each other. They're moving forward um, in, in this endeavor of serving God. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit separated them specifically, that Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Paul, however you'd like to say it, that they had a ministry that was for them, and God called them to it. And how important it is for us to be those that um, are really walking in whatever God calls us to walk in. That whatever ministry He's, he's uh, introducing for us, the importance of us being involved in that ministry. Now, we also talked about just this idea that... Um, that it was the Spirit that called him, that when we minister, that we minister not just for people. Oftentimes our ministry will end up ministering to people, right? If we're involved in church, the, a lot of times the end fruit of our ministries will be for people, but that we don't minister for people, right? We minister to the Lord. We minister because the Spirit has called us to. As soon as our attention shifts from what God has called us to do and walking in that to, I'm actually doing this for the people, again, it ends poorly, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but every once in a while, people are unthankful. Just sometimes, right? Every once in a while, you may, at church, become unappreciated. It's surprising, but it will happen, right? We can never move from a place of saying, I'm serving Jesus in the ministry He's called me to, to a place where I say to myself, I'm doing this because it makes me feel good, it makes other people feel good, it makes me feel appreciated, it makes other people feel appreciated. All the reasons that can be benefits, obviously, there's nothing wrong with being appreciated, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help people, but if those are our motivations, those motivations will dry up and will be left, again, angry, bitter, all sorts of crazy emotions kind of going on. So this morning, I want to kind of be, kick off. We have a great cross-section here of the ministry. And again, just like last week, what did we define the ministry as? Not as what happens at church or getting paid by the church or something like that, but our involvement, every one of us, our involvement in seeing the kingdom of God built in whatever fashion that is. If you're seeing the kingdom of God built because you're emptying the trashes to the glory of God, if you're seeing the kingdom of God built because you're ministering at the water cooler at work or whatever it might be, that's our definition for ministry, not just doing stuff at church or having a title at church or something like that. So in that vein of working in ministry, just going to talk about some, some things that I even had a title this morning. Luke said I should have titles, so I'm, I'm going to start rocking titles. It's the idea, the, here, are you guys ready for the title? If I have it, you better write it down. I'm just kidding. I don't care if you write it down. The, <laughs> it's ideas on longevity in the ministry. That's what we're going to talk about today. Ideas on longevity in the ministry. Uh, the average, I've read a couple different times from Barna studies. And again, this, this is kind of pastoral, kind of getting to that church central idea. But the average pastor lasts something like three to four years at a church. And then the average youth pastor lasts about a year and a half. Um, and that you have, they have some pretty radical statistics about people that are quitting the ministry and all these different things. Now, granted, this is Barna, so it's, it would be the entire nation, every denomination, every everything. Um, so take that into account. But there, the thing about ministering, which just means service, right? The thing about ministering is that it can, it can grow bothersome, it can grow tiresome, it can grow annoying, it can grow lonely. It can grow all sorts of ways that we can respond it negatively to. And so what we have is this amazing cross-section. Uh, we don't know how long it is, but we know it was, it was very long as far as distance. I think we even have, we're getting crazy here, I think we have a map. 
Yeah, yeah. Pretty soon I'm going to get my own parking space or something. I'm just, but uh, I'm just kidding. If you ever see that, just go to another church. But the, uh, so we see is Antioch, right? So they start in Antioch, and then they go to Seleucia, like we were reading. So it's about 16 miles. From Seleucia, they catch a boat, and they go to Salamis, okay? So that's about 120, or excuse me, about like 160 to 180 mile trek on the boat. From there, presumably they walk about 130 miles from Salamis to Paphos, and then it's not on this map, but they're, then they're going to take another boat from Paphos, and they're going to go almost due north to Perga, okay? So remember, this is by, like, ancient boat. This isn't, there's no cars, there's no uh, uh, pleasure liners. It's by, like, one sail and, and oars that they're taking this 160-mile, 180-mile boat trip. After that, they're going to do all that hiking. So I just kind of want to set a... Uh, I don't know, maybe a scene to kind of help us understand, because in our, it's funny, in our Bibles, it's like three verses, right? Uh, they walk 16 miles, and they end up there, and then they take a boat, and then they're there, and then they're this, this. But in reality, this is months. Right? This is a long time. And you've probably heard this before, because our walk with Christ is not a marathon. Ministry is not a marathon. Or excuse me, it's not a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Is, and so when we're involved with one another, when we're working through things, we have to remember the things like patience and kindness. I tell you what, I am becoming, forever that's worth, more and more convinced that the reason Jesus kept it so simple was because it, things can get so muddled and so crazy. You know, love one another, <laughs> right? Love God, love one another. Why? That's really simple, isn't it? It's not easy, but it's very simple. And the more I've been thinking about, for example, and I know I've talked about this for the last few times, I'm not trying to, trying to belabor this point, but the more I think about the fact that, for example, in the U.S., there wasn't a Bible in every home until like 1850. That's when you really saw a Bible. Same with the U.K. So for literally centuries, nobody has a Bible except for maybe the local church. There's no devotionals. That, those, those, they don't exist. There's no K-Love. There's no you know, email devotional. There's no daily bread. There's, there's none of that. There's no Bible. There's no getting up and, and, and reading the Bible and getting that daily. That does not exist. So in, for, until 1800s in the U.S. So when Jesus comes along and he says, hey, we should love each other, it, it kind of gives you like a whole bearing, doesn't it? Kind of a whole direction where I may not know everything. Now, we're blessed. I will make one kind of, to me, has kind of been interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So we live in a, right now in the nation, we live in probably the most Bible-saturated place on the planet, right? And there's, there's more places like that. Uh, even in the United States, you get to the Bible Belt, and that it gets more Bible-saturated. And this is just a personal musing. But have Christians ever been more divided? It's interesting that we have the most Bible input at any time in history. The most richest Bible teaching and scholarship. And yet, when you look across the nation, it seems like we're just so incredibly divided. It's fascinating to me. And Jesus came along and had some really simple words. So should we study the word? Is it great? Is the Greek great? Yeah, 100%. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm just saying that in ministry at work, church, whatever it is, longevity 
is really important. Because longevity, it not only benefits the minister, it benefits the ministered, the people that we're trying to help. And so we don't want to lose sight of the distance, the, the patience, the, the, the simple things, the reality of caring for one another, loving one another, all these, these different things. And in this chapter, what do you have? You have the leadership sending these guys out. You have them crossing an entire island. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. You have them battling, literally battling the forces of evil where Paul like pronounces this sentence upon this man who's perverting the ways of God and trying to prevent people from coming to God. You have these high highs and you kind of have this just, well, think about it. The whole commentary in verses 5 and 6 is, they preached the gospel in the synagogues for 130 miles. And then, and then there's this one big event that occurs. So you have two verses that describe 130 miles of ministry, and then you have an entire section that describes one event at one time in one place in ministry. And the, the, the bulk of ministry very often is the 130 miles. And every once in a while... It's the rebuking evil in the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? So in ministry, highlights are great. Exciting times are great. Baptisms are great. People getting saved is great. That's all great. And we're not, we're not minimizing the ministry. We're not saying, well, don't expect great things. You know, we're just kind of here to hang out. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying that we have to be prepared for the 130 if we're going to get to rebuking the magician. And if we wear out in the 130, we'll never even get to the musician. So it's with that in mind, that kind of idea that we look at this. So what are some ideas of how we can experience this longevity? First one, chapter 13, verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. They were attached to the brethren. This is important. We live in a kind of a society, in our society, and, and I'm making a general statement here. I'm not saying you, I don't know you. But as a general error... Americans cast off authority in any way. Uh, one of the YouTubes that I like to watch quite a bit is uh, different YouTubes that you can, you can search them up to. Um, buyer beware on that one. But there's just hearing reports from people that have come to America. It's fascinating. People that have visited America. And I would say by far and large, I've actually never heard a negative from that. You can take with that what you will, but... I mean, even people that come from first world countries like Ireland and so forth, they make commentary, they come to America and they're like, I never, I always thought America was really weird and like we're all cowboys like shooting each other in the street until I came there and I realized the opportunity that, that's there. I mean, it's, it's kind of, people recognize that this nation is amazing and that it's great and that there's so much good here. Obviously there's bad too, but there's so much good here. But one of the things that almost every one of those videos that I've ever seen, when, they, when people that visit the United States, they also say the same thing. Americans do not care what people do or say around them. They're like, they, they call us, in England, they call us cowboys. Literally not like we like to rope steer, but in the idea that we do whatever we want. We just ride a horse and get crazy, and we do not care about authority and so forth. And so that's a universal kind of interpretation that a lot of people have when they come to visit. What's my point? Societally, if you remember, a couple hundred years ago, we didn't want to pay taxes on tea, so we chucked it in a harbor. I mean, think about that for a second. We're like, oh, yeah, king? Boop. What now? Right? 
Our nation is literally founded on giving the bird to a king. And we've, I'm, not, I'm, just saying, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that we have this culture of just being like, nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it my way. And it, it worked for Frank Sinatra. I'm all in, right? That's kind of like the mode of our nation. That's how, and there's a lot of movements that kind of embody that in our nation, this idea that whatever, you fill in the blank. I don't want to say anything offensive. So it's fill in the blank of how we can experience that or even have these kind of thought processes in our life. But the problem with that is if you bring that into the church, not only is it not going to bring longevity in your ministry, in your life, it's going to shorten it. Because when we act in this way of just being like, I do what I want, when I want, how I want, it typically brings destruction, and it is also very uninviting, and it's destructive to people that are around us, isn't it? When we treat people cavalier, when we do all that, it it's really turns out poorly. Maybe you've observed it too, perhaps in your church or in your own life, you said some, somebody came up with an, like a ministry idea, like, hey, let's go, I don't know, let's go... I'll use something ridiculous so I don't offend someone. Let's go spray paint Jesus loves you on the side of people's houses. All right? And somebody might have that idea and go, this is a really great idea. Then they'll know that Jesus loves them because they'll walk outside and right in their garage door, it'll say Jesus loves you. We'll be getting the gospel out. But somebody else comes along and says, well, here's the thing. That's, that's personal property. Well, people shouldn't care about their property okay, I'm not sure that that's a biblical idea, but I understand where you're going with that, but maybe we shouldn't spray paint other people's stuff. And you get in this big, this big thing, right? So if person A, spray painter, ignores person B and starts spray painting down a neighborhood, what's going to happen to person A? They're going to jail, right? Not only are they going to jail, there's going to be an awful lot of people, probably including Christians, that are like, who would you spray paint my stuff for? Are you kidding me? That's a pretty ridiculous idea. But sometimes we get ideas in the ministry and we bring them to people, hopefully, that we trust. And they're like, let's put the kibosh on that. And we're like, you don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. We do it with ministries. We do it with relationships. Perhaps you've done that in a relationship or you've observed that. Somebody came to you and said, hey, I've got this relationship. I'm dating this guy or this gal. She's the best. And you're like, really? Cool. Like, what church do they go to? Well, they really don't, but they will. And you're like, okay. Do you understand that there will be complications with that? The scripture says we shouldn't be unequally yoked. And they're like, ah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, right? And then later on, 20 years down the road, children have been born, and that other person is like, church is stupid. And now you're raising a child with one parent saying, we should go worship Jesus, and the other parent saying, that's the stupidest thing ever. That's going to cause a problem. If you have it with ministries where somebody along the line is saying, hey, we should do this or we should do that, if it's offensive to the community, then we shouldn't do that, right? So there's, there's many different ways where, where people want to help us and we don't listen to them. And so if we want to stick to a longevity in the ministry or at least make it easier on ourselves to be able to have that patience and that longevity, listening to people around us is important. In this case, you have the prophets and teachers, right? And this is a really cool picture because they go, they're praying together, they're fasting together. We've talked about that. And then the Spirit says, hey, these are the people, I want this ministry, and you send them away. And their response is what? To fast and pray again. 
and then to lay hands on them. And it's, it's interesting because the wording is fantastic. It says, then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them, which is kind of a picture of the fact that, that anointing, that yes, we're on board with this. This is a great plan. We believe this is exactly what God wants. And it says, and they sent them off. But verse 4, so it says, they sent them off, being the prophets and teachers. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. You catch that? So it was the brethren that sent him out, but the commentary of the Bible is that it was the Holy Spirit that sent him out. It came through the brethren. Now here's the thing, and I want to be very careful here. For some of us, even mentioning the idea of church authority, we kind of were like, wait, what? What do you, you, you tell me nothing. I do, I do, it can be like scary, right? Because our minds flash to weird cults where you have to trade your genes in with the elders and they decide if they're worn out or not. Right? Or weird cults that try to control your relationships. Weird, you know, kind of shepherding movement where the pastor says everything and that's law. And that's obviously broken and unhealthy. So if the, if the mere mention of church government or church authority brings you to this place of like oppression and fear and that somehow somebody's trying to get you, if you've had a bad experience, we're not talking about that. We're not even referencing that that's the idea behind church leadership or anything like that. We're looking at the idea of just people that are walking together in this case, they were leaders of churches or, or uh, in, to gather together at one church, and they're walking together, ministering to the Lord together, and then out of that comes a certain fruit, right? In fact, Hebrews 13, if you want to flip over there, and let me just say this too. I think people that know me or have been around the block, I have no desire, and I don't think our elders do or our deacons have any desire to try to tell anybody to do what to do with their lives. We have none. Our goal and desire, I, I, for me personally, the anthem is 1 John 1, where John writes to the churches, and he says, we're writing to you so that you might have fellowship with us because our fellowship with the Father, we're writing to you so your joy may be full. So I think it's really important that we understand that any pastor or person worth their salt that's giving you any kind of advice, they're going to be the ones, that, the goal is this, I just want you to have joy. Now, as a, as a person of faith, I'm sure that you can, I hope anyway, that you can agree with the fact that God's will is what ultimately will bring us joy. And so when we're counseling people, and maybe we have hard things to say, the Bible said that the wounds of a friend, right, it's the wounds of a friend are faithful. That that's faithfulness, is to be able to share hard words with people. So when, 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 for example, our own personal leadership at this church or wherever, the healthy leadership says, say what they say because they're trying to help people's joy. They're trying to help people to have fellowship with Christ. There's some kind of wild verses, and let me explain these before you run out the back door. But in Hebrews chapter 13, he says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke, the word, spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So one of the application verses from Hebrews 13, this is really important when you're considering church leadership or people of wisdom that you want to either allow yourself to be accountable to or to listen to their counsel. Number one, consider the outcome of the way of life. What is the outcome of this pastor or this person's way of life before I'm going to listen and intake what they have for me as counsel? You, have, you, have, you could turn to 1 Timothy 3 and you can see literal... Uh, requirements for elders and deacons, not brawlers, not quarrelsome, apt to teach people that want to help and bring other people along. So we're not talking about blind submission and weirdness. 
We're talking about observing your church leadership, and if you see the outcome of their life, that what, that it is, what fruit is it? Is it fruit of the flesh? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is it covetousness? If you find that to be the outcome of the, the faith of your church leadership, then you, I would encourage you to go and talk to them. We have an open-door policy. You could talk to anyone else about anything. It's fine. I had a lady come here telling me one time, she's like, I'm not going to listen to you because of your beady little eyes. I was like, eh, oh, that's cool. I hope you find a big-eyed pastor somewhere. <laughs> what do you want me to do with that? It's fine. So we want to be an open book here. We want to be open to what you have. But the, there's still the reality. He says, you should consider your leaders. Again, this isn't like some, this is obviously a very weird topic to talk about, right? Because it can become very self-centered. It could become this, where I'm trying to give some lecture about, you should listen to us, because doggone it, we're wise. But that's not what we're saying. You can evaluate for yourself whether you should look, listen to us. You can evaluate the fruit of this church, the fruit of my life, the fruit of our elders' lives, the fruit of our deacons' lives. You can invite that for yourself. And then decide, are these, what are the motivation of these people? Are the motivation of these people to see my best, to see my joy, to see my peace? Or is the motivation of these people to get money? Or is it to gain stature? I mean, we do have like 10 views a week on our YouTube, so I know. Me and Dan TDM are like this, right? What, what is our motivation here? What are we doing here? And if you decide and if you evaluate in an honest way, you go, hey, you know what? I think these, the people here at this church, I think this church leadership, that they have the best for me, then your call is to listen to us. Which sounds really pompous, right? I'm sorry, but it's what the Bible says. I'm not trying. If you don't want to listen to me, don't listen to me. It's cool. But if you're going to walk with God, if you want longevity in the ministry, listening to people that you can see and you believe have your best in mind, it's going to help you in the darkest times. There's nothing worse than neglecting counsel and getting to a dark, lonely place and having rejected counsel, just being, just wallowing. And that's where so many of us, including myself at times, have ended up. But listening to the, the wounds of a friend, listening to someone who's willing to tell you the truth, there is great benefit in that. In verse 17, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think that you'll probably find, if you were to listen to every single teaching I've ever given, I've never called you to obey our church leadership. And that's not necessarily my heart. There's some debate about what that means and how that works out. Because obviously you're not just to blindly obey your church leadership. Blindly submit to what they say, because we're weird and we can say some weird stuff. So you're, you're first established as to what does the word say. But this is important. And I, 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 for one, take it seriously. I think Luke does. I think that our elders do. We're going to give an account for you. And my pastor, before I pastor a church, and the guys that I talk to about my own problems like that, they're going to give an account for how they treated me. And I'll give an account for how I listened to them in their godly counsel. There's an important reality that, that we love one another, and care for one another. We're honest with one another. And for longevity in ministry, for not retracting from ministry, for not, if any, there's a, if any time in our history, at least that I've been on the earth, 
that there's been a time to want to retract and retreat and put walls up and say, screw the kingdom of God, I don't really care. I just want to make sure I'm safe and my family's safe. This has been that time. But this is not the time for retreat. This is not the time to neglect the kingdom. This is the time to press forward. This is the time to be ready with the gospel. This is the time to walk that 130 miles. This is the time to be involved with what God has for us. Not necessarily evaluating the fruit, and that's fine, but to be obedient to what he's called us to do. So I want to encourage you, if you're facing decisions, if you're thinking about what you're trying to do in life, if you're making decisions in life, find church leadership that you trust. If you don't trust the leadership here, I can respect that. That's fine. But find somewhere that you do. And invest there. And invest in your leaders. And talk to them. The second part of this for longevity, I I mentioned this already, is in verses 4 and 5, if you want to flip back to uh, Acts chapter 13. Well, actually, before we go on, I pretty rarely do this, but I think it's important because this is such a weird topic, or at least a weird topic to talk about. Does anybody have any questions? Anything you want to ask or say? It's fine if you do. I'll be glad to answer any questions about anything we do at the church. Try to be an open door. Wondering about the money, we can show you how the money works, who counts it when it goes to the bank. I never see the money. I have no idea who gives. It's that way on purpose. Have any questions about deacons and how they got to be deacons? Or be glad to answer them. So if you have any questions, feel free to, you can ask now or ask me later because we really we want to be an open book. And I can speak for uh, John Powell and Mark Oglesby. John's in with the kids. Mark works the cranberries, so he'll be gone until the end of November. But honest to goodnessly, we meet every Friday, and we really only care for your joy. We have no other interest than that. So if you, if you have any questions, we are always available to answer those. Uh, I think my cell phone number is on the back of the bulletins. It used to be. It's uh, 360-244-5558. You're always welcome to call. And you're always welcome to ask whatever you want. Um, I always have time for coffee, whatever. So I'm not trying to make this even weirder than it is. I just want to uh, <laughs> let you know we're available for whatever you want to do or say. Um, I've made it a goal. I don't sh- I'm not sure I've achieved it, but I've made it a goal in my life to be able to hear anything and not be offended by it. So if you want to give that a go, we'll see what happens. All right, let's move on then. So verse 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Man, it's so important that the Spirit of God is who sent you out. Not bitterness, not anger, anything like that. In any ministry we're involved in. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos... They came upon a certain magician. And just to reiterate the point, this is the 130. There is one verse that describes what they did for 130 miles of the ministry. They preached the Gospels in the synagogue. That's all we have. It wasn't until they get all the way to Paphos. Oh, it's gone. It wasn't until they get all the way to Paphos, the other side of the island, that the big event happens, that the showdown with evil comes out. And there's Paul and Barnabas, and it's high noon, and 
right? Until that point, it was just fidelity. Walking in the hot sun, in their man dresses and sandals, preaching the gospel. And it's important to realize and not to get discouraged in the ministry when you're, you're doing what God's told you to do and you don't see the miracles. Are we saying settle for less? Are we saying God's not doing miracles? No, we're not saying that at all. We're saying that I don't know how many pages the book of Acts is, but it covers anywhere from 20 to 30 years, and it's, you know, 28 chapters. So we have highlights from three decades. So we get to be involved in church here and doing things here, and great things have happened here, and God is working things here, but not every day is a showdown with the pro assistant. Don't get discouraged in that. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, they're having an issue in their church, and they're kind of wrestling with kind of ideals and styles of teachers. They say, oh, we like Peter, we like Paul. Once somebody's really spiritual, they're like, I'm of Jesus. And you know, <laughs> Paul rebukes them all and says, no, that's not what we're about. So it's a different context, but the point he makes, he says, who, who is anybody? Who, who, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? He says, we're nobodies. He says that, but this is the point I want to get to. He says, but one person waters, or one person plants, one person waters, but God gets the increase. Right? So when we're out walking the 130 in the blazing sun, sweating, going, is there any fruit? Is there any point? We can stow that thinking right away. We can take those thoughts captive. Because we're not ministering to see the fruit per se. We love fruit. Fruit's good. But we're out here walking in the, in the 130 miles in the hot sun because we're out planting and watering. But ultimately, God gets the increase, not us. And it's not for us for measure. It's not for us to measure. There's something really important to realize in the 130-mile portion of ministry, and it's this. People have free will, and they will use it as they will. So we cannot become offended, right? The, the servant of the Lord must not be offended, Paul tells us. We cannot be offended because people exercise their free will to reject us. Sometimes they reject us, sometimes they reject the message. But either way, it's not for us to be offended over. It's not for us to be angry over. It's fine to be sorrowful. I wish you would receive Jesus. But then we leave it. You'll notice that multiple times the the uh, disciples, they dust the feet, right? Jesus sends them out, and then when they get done with their ministry, when they were rejected, what did they do? It says that they dusted the sand off their feet. This was actually a normal thing that a lot of the prophets, is an Old Testament idea, and the idea isn't so much like, you know, forget you, we hate you, you're stupid, but the idea is more along the lines of, I'm dusting the sandals off my feet. I went there, I ministered, I'm not even going to let your dirt follow me. I'm done and I'm not moving on to the next thing. It's not, again, it's not an angry thing. It's not a, you know, ha, God judge you now thing. It's a, I'm not going to track this with me thing. I'm going to keep moving forward. If we want to have longevity in the ministry, we commit people to the Lord, and we keep moving forward. We pray for them. We can weep for them. We can love them, all those things. But we don't, we can't live and die with them. We can't try to force them. We can't try to, to be angry with them or offended with them. We can pray and let them do what they're going to do with their free will, which is probably the most 
difficult part of ministry is the reality of ministry is you invest your entire life into someone and at some point there's a very good chance they're just going to say, you wasted my time. And that's okay. Because as Paul said again in 2 Corinthians 4, we're here to bear about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be manifested. We're here to be cast down but we'll never be destroyed. We're here to be perplexed but not, but not be fearful because we're being sent out by the Holy Spirit into our jobs and our schools and our families, our churches. We're being sent forward to minister Christ and His Holy Spirit is sending us, ministering to us. And that's going to give us just, well, longevity and joy and peace in the midst of what can be trials and difficulties, right? If we move on in verse 6, this is another one. Check it out. Another portion of longevity. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician uh, who's a Jewish false prophet. Oop, I read the wrong verse. Let's see. It's the end of verse 5. It says, and they had John to assist them. So they're going through and they have John to assist them. Jump down to verse 13 for me, if you would. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why John Mark left. So that's important. It's very important, actually. A lot of people try to stick John Mark with a lot of things. But the reality is, no one knows. None of the apostles wrote about it in some extra-biblical sense. No, there's no history about it. There's no reason in the Bible why he left. He just left. Did he miss? His mother was most likely a widow. Did he, was he concerned about her care? Was he sick? Was he concerned about being persecuted? Was he just tired of walking 130 miles and he thought, here's my chance to eject? We don't know. All we know is it was negative, or at least it was negative to Paul. Right? Because if you recall in chapter 15 and verse 36, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go revisit all the churches, or you know, basically all the places we visited and started churches and preached the gospel. Let's go back and check on all of God's people. Barney says, I'm in, let's do this. And so then he, Barnabas says, let's take Mark. Mark is his nephew. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark. We're not taking Mark because he left us in the work. So to Paul, for whatever reason he left, this was a very negative event. And it was so negative that as Paul and Barnabas begin to talk about it, they get to a place where he finally says, where, where excuse me, they get to a place where uh, Paul finally says, we can't journey together then. Barnabas and Paul split ways. And Barnabas takes, uh, takes uh, Mark and Paul grabs Silas. So evidently it was such a big deal to Paul he was willing to part ways with someone that the Holy Spirit had put him together with and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. So here's the thing. Uh, the analogy, uh, there's a, you guys probably know Jim. Jim shared this analogy, Jim Lemayach shared this analogy with me once, and it, I, it really struck home for me. The ministry is it's a bus and not a party boat. And what I mean by that is, in the ministry, in your ministry, in your life, there will be people that get on the bus and travel with you for a while, and then there will be people that get off the bus. And sometimes people get off a bus in a stop that you don't think they should get off, but they're still going to get off the bus. And sometimes there's people that are on the bus that you wish would stay with you all the way in the journey, but they still get off the bus. 
And sometimes they get off the bus with bad feelings. Sometimes they get off the bus and you don't understand why. But see, what we want is we want Christianity to be a party boat. Like we all get on the boat. I grew up next to or near Lake Nacimiento in California. And what you see what happens is there's all these people and there'll be a dock and you'll see like a hundred people get on this lake boat. And some of them are wholesome and some of them are not, but they get on this lake boat, right? And they go out in the middle of the lake and the music is booming and everybody's dancing and depending on what they're drinking determines what's going on. But it's just just this big party and no one can leave. (laughs) They're stuck on the boat. And, 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 you know, it doesn't, we just, that's what we want. And that's because it's secure, it feels secure that way, right? You can't get off the boat. You're an owner. I'm here, you're here. But it's just not that way. It's not human nature. So in Christianity, we have to realize that there's going to be people that leave us when we don't want them to. And, and uh, here, uh, this, is, this is just speculation, but maybe Mark had a really good reason in his, in his mind to leave. And Paul just didn't understand it. So there's nothing that says it was good or it was bad other than Paul said it was bad. Bad enough that he left Barnabas. So there's going to be times where there's John Marks, people that helped us, people that assisted us, people that, that we loved and they loved us, and they're going to leave. And that is okay because they're not ours to have. They're not ours to possess. They're not ours to own. And they're not ours to dictate what they should do. Our job is to love them. And when they jump off on what we might consider to be the wrong bus stop, to just say, oh, I'll pray for you, (laughs) as they drift off into the distance, is to love them. If we get angry at people because they decided that this is the bus stop for them, we're the ones that have to repent. And commit them to the Lord. And say they're yours. And I'm going to love them by praying for them and caring for them. And then you take the hurt. And you bring that to the Lord. You don't bring the hurt to the people that hurt you all the time. There's a time. But first it has to go to the Lord. If you take raw hurt and emotion to the people that have hurt you, guess what's going to happen? It's not going to mellow out. It's not like it doesn't usually so we have to be those that we bring our hurt to the Lord first. And the other side of ministry is this. Sometimes it's time to get off the bus if you're the John Mark. Sometimes it's time to get off a bus. Maybe it's time for a new route. Maybe it's time for a new place. Maybe it's time. And there will be people around you that when you say, I, I just feel like God's doing this in my life. Hopefully it's legitimate. I will make a side note that this is the will of God is one of the, base, the best aces in the hole that you can ever have. And you can justify a lot with it. And it's just like, it's kind of this way that sometimes we exercise this, this trump card we pull out. We just don't want to actually explain what we're doing. What's the will of God? And what's the other person going to say? No, it's not. I mean, I guess you could. If it's like, it's the will of God for me to spend all my money in Vegas. I'd be like, eh, I'm pretty sure that's not being wise. Probably don't want to do that. But on so many things, it's gray, right? We don't know. And so somebody says, hey, I got to get off the bus. And it could be you that you're saying, hey, look, I rode it to here. This is where I am. God bless you. And you get off the bus. And there might be people on the bus going, why are you leaving the bus? Don't you know you'll die if you get off the bus? And you know what you do? You love them. God bless you. I trust that 
the God that I've committed my whole life to. He can preserve me at this stop. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And you love that person. You don't get mad at them for being mad at you for getting off the bus. That's just the flesh. They're just responding because they love you. They care about you. So it's really important. Hopefully you can see too how it really boils down to this idea where Jesus, when he just comes along, I mean, in my mind when I think about it, right? I think about Jesus, whether he's sitting on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain there in Luke, or whether he's walking along. I mean, just, do you think, I think about this a lot lately. There's just the fact that the parables, like Jesus is literally walking down the street when he gives the parables. I love to study the Bible. I love the intricacies of it and all that. But when he gave a parable, it's like he's literally just strolling like, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds. You know, and we're over here like, oh, the seed. What is, ha, ha, ha. I just say, and he's like really just saying like, yeah, it starts off small, gets really big. You should probably plant it. I mean, you really think about it. He's just walking down the road and he just says, hey, we should love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And just walks away. He made it really, really simple for us, didn't he? Like super simple. And I'm not minimizing the Bible. I love the Bible. It's, the Bible is awesome. And the prophecy and just the absolute spider web of connections that, that span from Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's supernatural and amazing. But there's nothing more important than you should love God, love your neighbor. And like if you do that, you cannot go wrong. It's incredible. It transcends every culture. It transcends every place on the, on the earth. It just, so if we want to have longevity in the ministry, let's love God. Let's love people. And let's, let's have a soft touch on people's lives. It's great to weep and pray for them. But it's their life. And we can let them have it. They get to do, God gave it to them to do what they want with it. And they can invest it or they can miser it. And we're just there to be helpers of their joy. So if we want to have longevity in ministry, be able to continue for 130 miles before the big event, we have to be those that are willing to love and to let go, to care and to not oppress. And that is so hard, isn't it? It's so hard to not just want to grab people and go, you're going to do the right thing, and I'm going to help you. But that... It does not work out, does it? <laughs> Never has for me, anyway. All right. So let's look at the big event now. So a Jewish false prophet, they come to Paphos, in verse 6, they came upon a certain magician. The idea is a sorcerer, somebody who communicates with the demonic. This is not, uh, uh, you know, just some guy who's doing some card tricks in a park or something. This is a man who claims and who does have communication with the demonic end. He's a sorcerer. And he's a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Uh, that means son of Jesus. Uh, remember, um, it's not probably referring to Jesus, like our Savior. Uh, Jesus was actually a fairly common name. Yahweh is salvation. So uh, he's, he's probably not actually referring to himself as like, I'm the son of Jesus who was crucified. The idea is just, I'm the son of somebody who was named Yahweh is salvation in Hebrew. Does that make sense? So he's not linking himself to Christ. So his, his, his name is Bar-Jesus, or at least it would be like a last name. 
uh, verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So the proconsul is a Roman leader, a governor of sorts in the area, appointed, um, uh, appointed by Rome to, to be in charge of a certain area as a governor. A man of intelligence. So evidently this man is pretty dang smart. So he summons, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he has this uh, Jewish false prophet that kind of rolls with him, is kind of an assistant to him. But Sergius Paulus, an intelligent person, he summons Barnabas and Saul. So he hears that they're in town. He's probably curious. Remember, at this point, Christianity is called the way. It's called, they're called Christians, and it is sanctioned by the Roman government at this point, because the Roman government still looks at Christianity as a sect of Judaism. Does that make sense? So this leader calls them to hear, most likely, like, what is this thing that went down in Jerusalem? Remember, he is very far from Jerusalem. He lives on Cyprus, and Jerusalem, we don't have the map up, but it's, it's 300 miles south of Antioch. So Jerusalem's across a sea, and, you know, a couple hundred miles southwest, or southeast of, of uh, Paphos. So he gets an opportunity. These people are preaching Christ. He says, I want to hear about this, this sect of Judaism, and he invites them to come and speak to him. And he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed to them. So this is kind of a, a problematic word for scholars, Elamus, because it's not a, it's not a Jewish word. It's not like a word that's, that would be recorded anywhere else. It's more like a nickname. It's some sort of nickname that had either Arabic or Jewish, uh, Jewish origin that, may, that meant magicians. So he had taken this uh, kind of slang word as a, uh, I don't know if I'm going to call it a stage name, but as a nickname for himself. Does that make sense? So his name is not Elamus. It's like a stage name or a nickname that he's adopted for himself based on uh, a slang word for magician. Does that make sense? Not? All right, cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, so he says he opposed them. So this is different. This man is not passive about it. He's not um, just kind of like checking things out. He actually opposes them. Perhaps he didn't want to lose his position, whatever it was. But he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So this person is not just some average Joe. He's communing with demonic forces, and his goal here is to stop the proconsul from hearing anything about faith in Jesus Christ. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, I want to pause here for a second. This is really important. Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, this isn't Paul just going off half-cocked. I don't like you and your magician shenanigans, so I'm now going to pronounce curses upon you. It would be Paul who would write in the Colossians, to the Colossians. This is, I think, in, uh, a good balance for us to look at. When Paul, uh, excuse me, when Paul writes to Colossae, he says there in Colossians chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul's philosophy of dealing with outsiders is to use speech that is gracious, Seasoned with salt, that doesn't mean so it's irritating to a wound. It means so that it's palatable, so people can digest it. They'll eat it and digest it. Obviously, that's a metaphor. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he's saying use wisdom, walk in wisdom. Remember, knowledge is knowing something, and wisdom is, is 
properly applying the knowledge that you have. Right? Knowledge is knowing that something is hot. Wisdom is not touching that thing that is hot. Does that make sense? So he says Paul's life call, his Holy Spirit-inspired word, is that when we are dealing with outsiders, we ought to use wisdom and respond graciously with words that are seasoned with salt. In this case, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able to see the sun for, uh, for a time. So, this seems to be a little different than being gracious with all your words, doesn't it? But what is the key phrase that occurs right before he says this? Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a spirit-led pronunciation or prophetic utterance that was given to a person who had a very distinct agenda to stop the Word of God from moving forward. Does that make sense? This person was known for communicating with devils, with demons, and the demonic realm, and then channeling that power and that energy in, in whatever it was that he was doing. So I think it's noteworthy that we're careful before we want to unleash some sort of tongue lashing on someone. Does that make sense? So what Paul says, there's actually a lot of, uh, a lot of similarities uh, in this passage in the wording. For example, Paul was, uh, his, the, the Lord's hand was upon Paul and he was knocked off his donkey. Or excuse me, he just fell over and he, was, he saw the Lord. Paul was blind for three days after he cried out to the Lord. This guy's blind. But what you see are two different responses. Paul's responses were, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Paul's response to his blindness, if you, remember, if you recall when, when God taps Agabus on the shoulder and says, hey, you should go talk to this, or Ananias, hey, you should go talk to this guy. And he tells him, he is praying. Go see Paul. He is praying. So Paul's blindness resulted in fasting and praying. Paul's humbling resulted in, who are you and what do you want me to do? But this person's humbling resulted in him, it says there, searching around for people to lead him by the hand. So one person who received the, the knocking down, the humbling, embraced Christ. This person was unwilling to, as far as we know, produce any sort of humility. His response was to find somebody, not to deal with the blindness and the source of it, not to deal with the words from the servant of God and, and, and consider them and mull them over and, and perhaps ask questions about what just happened. That seems like a wise saying, wouldn't it? Some guy just says, you're evil and, and now you're going to be blind. It seems like a prudent time to ask questions, right? Why did you do that? Why am I blind now? Can you maybe tell me more about this Jesus who obviously has incredible supernatural power? But no. His instinct is to leave the source and to go find another resource. First resource was demonic power. Second resource is quite, a, I guess, a notch down. And now it's just, please lead me by the hand. So it's, I think it's noteworthy of how the two responses take place. But this person was against the gospel, 
was actively trying to stop other people from hearing the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit leads Paul to pronounce this um, truth and then, in a sense, discipline or punishment upon this man. So there's, and there's a supernatural thing. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. So this is not only does he become blind, but there's some sort of outside, some sort of evidence that this event has taken place. And God uses that because the, the pro-council, this person of Rome, now who are the Romans, right? They're the hardcore polytheists. They worship myriads of gods. They, they literally worship with radical, disgusting sexual practices with children. They give so much credence to local gods and the power of gods, right? This is, this is the Roman culture. So this pro-counselor who would have been absolutely steeped in that, this pro-counselor, to get a position like that, you have to acknowledge Caesar's God. You have to acknowledge the, the strength of the Roman power. You have to acknowledge the, the, the Roman and Latin gods. You have, to, that's, you have to be stuck in on that. Not to mention the vast majority of these pro-counselors were radically what we would consider to be scandalous. And so God does something in this guy's life by his mercy where this guy is able to see physically the power of Christ in a life. So he hears the gospel. He sees someone who despises and assaults the gospel. And then he sees God's power to overcome that uh, darkness. Does that make sense? So you have this amazing event and he gets saved. He gets saved. So, longevity in the work. How do we continue to find longevity in the ministry? Be led by the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit tell you what to do. So just in backtracking, what do you have? You have, be aware of the brethren. Brethren is just a word for men and women. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to the brethren that you can look at their lives and you, can, and you want to emulate that life. Listen to the brethren that you see the fruit in their life. Not, that, not brethren that never make mistakes but brethren that have deep fruit in their life. Emulate that. Ask them. Listen to them. Find them if you don't have any. Secondly, just know that it's 130 miles from Salamis to Paphmos, and there's just synagogues and sun and dirt along the way. Know that in the most difficult of times, people will leave you, and that's okay, because God is enough. And we bring those concerns and those hurts and those pains, we bring them to Christ and we, we cry at His feet and we lay them at His feet and He supernaturally comforts us, yeah. right? And then just also know this, that there will be hard times with great power that opposes what we're trying to do. And that's okay because God is powerful. And when He wants to do a work, no one's going to stop it. He opens doors that no man can shut. He shuts doors that no man can open. But even Paul says, he, when they get to, uh, I can't remember, it's Corinth, he says, hey, pray for us. We have a wide and open door, but there are many adversaries. And I don't think that ever changes, to be honest. <laughs> There's always going to be adversaries. But if we're going to continue in the work, we need to know these things, be able to identify these things, and then give them to the Lord as we move forward. And when we find attitudes, when we find anger, when we find pride, when we find um, 
rejection, whatever self-elevation, we repent of those things. Because if we don't, we're just not going to last and be effective for God's kingdom. It just won't work. But God has great things for us. So, The scripture says, Do not grow weary in well-doing, knowing that if we faint not, we shall reap. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your great grace. Lord, thank you for the many, many blessings that we have. Lord, thank you that you never rewarded us according to our iniquities. Lord, thank you that you've never required us uh, of us what our sins have merited. But Lord, thank you that you've just ministered to us grace upon grace. Help us, Lord, to love you and to love our neighbor and our brethren. Help us, Lord, to minister grace to our brethren. Help us, Lord, to be able to witness people doing things that we don't think they should and to love them. Lord, help us not to do the things that we think we should and ignore what we, we know is right. Lord, we just commit our hearts to you and we thank you that you're for this great endeavor, for your work, for your ministry. Thank you that you've given us a calling that's eternal, a calling that has fruit that cannot be destroyed, a calling that brings you nearer to us and us to you, and that we get to be helpers of people's joy. Help us to minister to outsiders with wisdom, and to keep our words gracious. Help us to know when the Holy Spirit's calling us to call evil, evil. Lord, we, we, we really want to serve you. And we really want to be kind of good at it. So would you please continue to encourage us and convict us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We commit our hearts to you. Thank you for food that we get to eat together today. We pray bless our fellowship and our lunch. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.